right, good evening. I'm glad that you're here. Uh, let's open God's Word. If you go to the book of Ephesians, we're going to pick up where we left off last Sunday night. Uh, we're reading through Ephesians in this month, and uh, last Sunday night we kind of got halfway through the material. Uh, last time we talked about uh, the idea of time-lapse photography and, and how you can see a plant that just kind of burst forth through the ground, and you can watch it grow through the miracles of time-lapse photography. And we said, boy, it would be neat if we could somehow go back into history and, and focus the time-lapse camera on the history and, and perhaps focus that camera on the church at Ephesus. And so that's kind of the word picture we were using last week as we were trying to understand the different phases that the church at Ephesus went through. And so I'd ask you to join me as we pray, and then we're going to look at these different phases and catch up from where we were last week and, and get into the material. By the way, what, wasn't today good with, with Mike Shipman? Man, that, that guy in some ways reminds me of the Apostle Paul, uh, just, just in the type of ministry that he has and the persecution he's, he has experienced and how he's taking the gospel into very hard places. I was thinking about Mike as I was reading again to this afternoon about Ephesians and all that Paul went through. And we'll look at one of those scriptures in a little bit. Uh, I asked Mike today, uh, this morning in my office, I said, have you experienced persecution uh, there in Indonesia? He said, and he was reluctant to talk about it. Uh, but he said, yes, I have. He said, uh, early on especially, he said, now we kind of pull out and uh, we, we train the people and we pull out because it's the, the, the people that live there that are planting the churches are growing this, this movement. Uh, he said, so our task is to equip them. He said, but early on, it, I was there in the midst of all of that. And one day I went into one, one of the major cities and was reading the newspaper and he was in the paper. There was a story about him and the work that he was doing there. Unbeknownst, it was not a positive story either. And, and his name was in the paper, and uh, he, he talked about some of the, the turmoil that, that they went through uh, in the past. So I, I like the idea of you getting the chance to meet missionaries like that, because when you give to the Light of Moon Christmas offering, too often we just think of it as just another offering. I hope somehow it, it goes to good people, you know. And you didn't even know Mike. Now you do. Now you realize that the money you're giving is going to support his work and others like him. So let's just thank the Lord for him and pray for him. And again, pray for his wife, Kathy, um, stage four lung cancer. And uh, so let's, let's pray for them during this time. Father, we're grateful that we have had the chance today uh, to meet Mike and Kathy and to hear from Mike about the work that you've done through them. And we do pray, God, that you'll continue this miraculous work in Indonesia a work of the spread of the gospel that, that we couldn't explain in human terms, but we recognize that the gospel indeed is good news. And I pray for those who so desperately need to hear it, that they'll find out there is a way they, that their sins can be forgiven. We pray for those pastors scattered all across Indonesia tonight. Lord, we'll, probably on this side of heaven, we'll never meet them. But together we lift our voice as this church in South Carolina, we pray for the churches of Indonesia. We're privileged that we have the freedoms that we have. We're privileged that, that we don't have to worry about the persecution that they worry with. But 
We just pray you'd strengthen their faith. You'd provide for their needs. You'd protect them from the evil one. And that, Father, you would use them most of all for the spread of your gospel and for the glorious name of Jesus. That that name would be magnified across Indonesia. And then, God, we want to pray for Mike and for Kathy, especially right now as they're going through this season of difficulty. We pray for Kathy, Lord, for her health. God, we would pray, it's our desire, for healing for her. We understand that may or may not be your will, but we express our heart to you, our desire, our prayer, is that, God, you would bring healing into her life. And may it be in such a way that it would be uh, undeniable miracle from you. But regardless, Lord, we do pray that you sustain Mike, sustain Kathy. It's a busy season in their life. Encourage them, renew them, and strengthen their bodies as well as their spirits. And may they can continue to do kingdom work, mobilizing churches to take the gospel across the world. Now, Lord, would you teach us tonight again as we open your word? May Jesus be honored and glorified. And I pray in Christ's name, amen. All right, so if we could somehow do a time lapse of history and focus the camera on this church at Ephesus, here's what we would find. If you look at the next slide. So we find here, I have to get up here so I can read it. We find here in this first picture, if you will, if we were to be able to take a photograph, around A.D. 52 is probably uh, during Paul's second missionary journey when he actually planted the church, he planted the seeds of the gospel on that very first time that he went into Ephesus during his second missionary journey. A very brief stay there, but that's probably when the gospel seeds were planted. Then the next picture, if we could take that camera, the next picture we would see is, uh, well, I'll show you the map, I'm sorry. All right, go ahead, that's good. Next picture, we'd see the third missionary journey. On the third missionary journey, Acts chapter 19, uh, we find out that Paul stayed a, a, a long time there, that he stayed, he stayed actually two years and three months, longer than he had stayed anywhere else, and that's why we call it weeding, that uh, the reason he stayed in that city longer than he stayed anywhere else is because of the, the pagan practices, the idolatry, the resistance in that city, and the need for that city for the gospel to take root and to spread throughout Asia. And so that would be the second picture. If you go to the next one. So in this next one, around AD 57, that's where we kind of stopped last time. Around AD 57. Now notice, what year was the church started? First slide, what, the, the first, 52. So about five years later, around AD 57, uh, approximate dates of course, but, but the church is about five years old in, when we come to the, this part of the story. AD 57, let me explain to you. Uh, what was what was happening during this time? During Paul's third missionary journey, Ephesus became the center of what we today would perhaps call a spiritual awakening, and, and it engulfed Asia Minor. If you remember, Paul had said earlier, in, in, or last week we were looking at the text, it said, "And all of Asia heard the gospel." So there was this spiritual awakening occurring there in Ephesus. Kind of like what Mike was talking about in Indonesia. But, but there was this, the gospel was taking root and the gospel was spreading and miracles were being performed. And if you remember last week, we talked about how the new converts, those who came to faith in Christ, built a public bonfire. And what did they burn in that bonfire? Do you remember? 
Yes, they burned all of their books of witchcraft, and, and uh, it was 50,000 drachmas, or 50,000 days of labor is what those would have been worth. But in the end, after all of that, after all the good things that happened and all that, in the end, Paul was eventually forced out of Ephesus by a riot that was instigated by Demetrius, the silversmith. Uh, I want you to go with me. Put your finger in Ephesians. Go with me to Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19. We looked at this briefly last week, but I want to compare it to another scripture here in just a moment. Acts chapter 19. About that time, there arose a what? What does it say? Great disturbance about the way. And look who's leading this great disturbance. A silversmith named Demetrius who made silver shrines of Artemis and brought in no little business for the craftsmen. He called them together along with the workmen in related trades and said, Men, you know that we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced the led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus. And watch this. And practically in the whole province of Asia. So here is a pagan man who's saying, Paul is really effective. In fact, he's so effective, we're about to lose our business. He's, large numbers of people here in Ephesus have come to faith in Christ, as well as those throughout all of Asia. And we, don't, we won't take the time to read this, but Demetrius led a riot that essentially forced Paul out of Ephesus. That's interesting if you'll compare that to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Go over there real quickly. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 32. Paul is talking to the church at Corinth, and he mentions Ephesus in this letter. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus for merely human reasons, what have I gained? Now, we don't know that Paul ever literally fought wild beasts. For example, what I'm saying is, we don't know, we don't have a record of Paul being you know, uh, in a coliseum fighting the lions or anything like that. So more than likely what Paul is referring to here is not literal lions or wild beasts, but he does refer to it. Look at it again. Um, Verse 32, If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus for merely human reasons, what have I gained? More than likely what Paul was talking about was those people like Demetrius and others who were opposing him and who ran him out of town. And the only reason I want you to see that verse is because I want you to understand the threats against him and how hard it was for Paul to do the work that he was doing there in Ephesus. Now, so Paul leaves town, forced out of Ephesus. He goes to Europe. He continues to share the gospel there. Now, this is where we were talking last week when we ended. Paul was on his way back to Jerusalem from Europe, and he decided that he wanted to stop and see the elders or, or the church in Ephesus. But the more he thought about it, the more he realized that if he stopped there, he's going to get stuck there. You ever been in one of those situations? Like, if I stop and talk to them, it's going, I'm going to be there a while. Well, Paul realized that, listen, I want to go check on the church in Ephesus. I didn't leave under good terms. I was run out of town. There was a riot there the last time I was there. Has a heart for his people. This is a strategic church, a strategic area. And so he decides, I want to see these people, but I know if I go there, I'm going to get stuck there. And so he sent for the elders, the Bible says. And if you look on the map up here, 
Uh, he sent for the elders, and you can see in that blue circle both Ephesus and the little island of Miletus. So he goes to Miletus. He sends for the elders in Ephesus to come to Miletus to see him. All right? That's, that's where we left off last time. So let's go, if you will, to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. Verse 16, Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus to avoid spending time in the province of Asia, for he was in a hurry to reach Jerusalem, if possible, by the day of Pentecost. From Miletus he sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. And when they arrived, he said to them, and then he, he has this long sermon where he's teaching them and speaking to them, preparing them, and, and then skip on down for sake of time. Verse 32, now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who, have sanct- who are sanctified. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. Remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said this, watch this, verse 36, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept, and they embraced him and kissed him. And what grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. Then they accompanied him to the ship. It's amazing when you read scripture how sometimes you can have memories tied to certain verses. Uh, When I was a young man, teenager, at uh, uh, Clifton View Baptist Church, our pastor, C.W. Hedgecock, the pastor I was saved under, the pastor I was called to ministry under, uh, he was leaving our church. He was retiring. Uh, and he had been at our little white church on the hill for as long as I can remember. My entire life, just about, that was C.W. Hedgecock was my pastor. And I remember him walking down the aisle, getting about three-fourths of the way back, kneeling down, Reading this scripture, how Paul said farewell to his friends at Ephesus and how he prayed with them and he knelt there and he read the scripture and he prayed with with us, his church family, and he prayed with tears dropping on the carpet and then he walked out the door. And I I always, in my mind, I link C.W. Hedgecock to this. I've got that picture in my mind and that's kind of what was happening for Paul. He, he was saying goodbye to them. Then he was getting on a ship, and they were go- he was going to sail away. And they were going to go back from Miletus back to Ephesus. All right, so that kind of catches us up from where we left off last week. Here's what I want you to understand. Look at this next slide. It should be slide 10 right here. Look at that third picture. Look at what's in red. Here's what I want you to understand. By this time, Every indication is that there was a strong church in Ephesus. This is a key point. It seemed to be organized. They had elders. Paul sent to the church. He asked the elders, the leaders to come, the pastors to come. And so by this time, the church was about four or five years old. Let's just use the, term, the, the uh, number five, roughly five years old. By this time, this young church, five years old, had, had organized, they were structured, they, they were effective, they had leaders. This was a church that, from all outward appearances, was, was pretty strong and healthy. All right, so, 
Let's go to the next picture. The picture we have here, if we're, again, the time-lapse photography, if we could do that, then we would see AD 62, what I call watering. About five years after Paul left these people on the beaches of Miletus, about five years after he said goodbye to them, he wrote a letter to them. This was about a decade after the church had been started. About five years after he had last seen them, he wrote a letter to the Ephesians commending them for their faith and their love. A careful reading of this epistle shows that they had done well, that their early years had been years of growing and expanding. They were doing the will of God. And he commends the church at the end of the letter for their undying love for the Lord. Let's go to Ephesians, to the last chapter The last verse. Keep in mind, about ten years after he planted the church, five years since the last time he saw them, he writes this letter, and they seem to be a strong, vibrant church. And notice how he ends this letter. Chapter 6, verse 24. Here's what he says. Last verse of the letter. Grace to all who love our Lord Jesus who love our Lord Jesus Christ with what? An undying love. He commends the church as people who have a sincere faith and an undying love for the Lord Jesus. Would you remember that, please? If you're taking notes, would you make sure you mark that down? That Paul, at the end of this letter, ten years after he planted the church, five years after he's last seen them, He commends them for their their relationship with Jesus, their sincere faith, and their undying love. Now, one of the reasons that this church was so strong and so vibrant is because they had many people who were teaching them and pouring their lives into this young church. This is so interesting. I want you to follow this carefully uh, in the Word. The church at Ephesus had many different teachers. You know, Paul was not a one-man show. Let me, show, let me explain what I'm talking about. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Now, this is not about the church at Ephesus. This is about the church at Corinth, but I just want you to understand Paul's model of ministry. Somebody read 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6. Read it out loud for me. Go ahead. Go ahead. All right. Here's what I want you to understand. When Paul went about doing his ministry, it was not a one-man show. He was writing again to the church at Corinth, not Ephesus, but he was writing to the church at Corinth. He said, I planted, Apollos watered, God gave the increase. In other words, I'm not the only one investing in you. I'm not the only one teaching you. I'm not the only one trying to lead you, there, there are other people involved in this ministry as well. Uh, and the, the same thing that, we saw, that you see in Corinth, Paul's not a one-man show, you especially see in Ephesus. Paul was not the only person trying to reach Ephesus. He was not the only person training the leaders in the church. Paul had lots of people helping him in that endeavor. Let, let me show what I'm talking about. Go over to the right and find 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy, chapter 1, 
First Timothy chapter 1. You're going to have to use your Bibles tonight. We're going to do a lot of turning back and forth, so be patient and follow along. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3 and 4. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless ge- genealogies. Who is he talking to here? Help me. Who is he talking to? Timothy. So Paul says, I left you, Timothy, there in Ephesus so that you can teach them and correct them. So if we were making a list, we would say, who are the teachers in Ephesus? One certainly is the Apostle Paul, and the second one would be who? Timothy. He's, that's not the only ones. Uh, go over to the left, find Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 18. Verse 24 through 26. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the Scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. So Apollos was a man who was a, a very, we, perhaps we would call him today, a very educated man, a very gifted teacher. And then also it says in verse 26, he began to speak boldly in the synagogue and when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. So again, if we were making a list of the teachers that were there investing in the people of Ephesus, Paul would be the first on the list, then we would have Timothy, then we would add to the list Apollos and Aquila and Priscilla. Now, I would suggest to you that's a pretty good list of teachers. I would suggest to you that this is one of the reasons that the church was so strong and so vibrant and they had reached all of Asia with the gospel. I mean, they had some great mentors in the faith. But that's not the only one. Let's make the list again. Who was the first one? Paul, who was the second? Timothy, who was the third one? Apollos, and then... Priscilla and Aquila. It's a great list. I mean, if you had those guys and that la- those ladies on staff, you're talking about a powerhouse teaching team there, all right? But there was another one. There was another one. Look at this next slide. This next phase, if you will, in this picture of the church, AD 95 or 85 to 90 is... What, what I've called producing. We believe, Jewish tradition says, that the Apostle John moved to Ephesus. That the Apostle John moved to Ephesus, and it was there that he wrote the Gospel of John, and 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, while he was in Ephesus. So the Apostle John himself, the one who followed Jesus, learned from Jesus, Not only did they have Paul and Timothy and Apollos and Aquila and Priscilla, but guess who moved into town? John. John, the follower, the disciple, the apostle of Jesus Christ. Oh, and by the way, guess who he brought with him? More than likely, he brought with him Mary, the mother of Jesus. Again, Jewish tradition, but if you're looking, we don't have have time to look. But in John chapter 19... When Jesus was hanging on the cross, I think it's John 19, I'm going on memory. Jesus was hanging on the cross. He said to John, take care of my mom. 
And it says from that time forward that Mary went home to live with John. So I think it's a pretty safe assumption that if John did move to Ephesus in his later years, he more than likely took Mary with him. You don't want to get on Jesus' bad side. If he said, take care of mama, what you going to do? You're going to take care of mama. And so if he moved to Ephesus, if John moved to Ephesus in his later years, and there's lots of reasons to believe that he did, if he moved to Ephesus in his later years, he probably took Mary, the mother of Jesus, with him. So in this church we're calling, that we call Ephesus, the church at Ephesus, here's the teachers, here's the lineup. Paul, Timothy, Apollos, Priscilla, Aquila, John, and Mary the mother of Jesus. That's a pretty good team, isn't it? If you need to know something about the faith, if you need to know something about the Lord, you've got seven reliable sources to turn to. Now, there's a reason that I've spent all of this time. I just want you to understand, this should have been one of the most thoroughly instructed of all the first century churches. The picture we have now is a picture of a well-watered, well-fed self-sufficient church of the living God in Ephesus. The reason I took a little time to paint that picture for you is because I want you to see this last picture. A.D. what? 95. And here the picture is of a church that is wilting. It was probably during the reign of the Roman emperor Domitian uh, that John was banished to the Isle of Patmos. Remember, he was in Ephesus. He likely moved to Ephesus. And then the Roman emperor probably banished him to the Isle of Patmos. You can see there the two blue circles, the one on the right, of course, being Ephesus, and the Isle of Patmos being there on the left. So not too far away from Ephesus, but certainly banished on that island. During this period of time, the Lord Jesus gives his assessment of the seven churches of Asia. Seven churches of Asia. You see Asia right there. The red. During his time, Revelation chapter 2, Jesus himself gives an assessment of the seven churches of Asia. Go with me to Revelation chapter 2 because the very first church that he mentions is the church of Ephesus. Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. He says in verse 2, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. And I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men and that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and you have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. It's not easy to be the church in Ephesus. Remember, it's the New York City of its day and Jesus looks at the church in Ephesus. I know your past and I know you've done some good things in a very hard place. Then he says in verse 4, Yet I hold this against you, you have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Do you 
remember how the book of Ephesus ends? How the letter ends that Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus? Do you remember what he commended them for? What did he commend them for? Your undying love. Paul, when he writes the letter, he says, I want to commend you for your undying love. Look up here. Look up here. Paul, when he writes the letter, A.D. 85, 90, this, this is a strong church, a ch- church that lots of people have invested in. And, and in A.D. 62, he, he writes them a letter and, and he commends them for their undying love. But a roughly 30, 32, 33 years later, the Lord Jesus looks at that same church And the Lord Jesus declares, you've left your first love. There's ever a church that, ever a church that had godly leadership. There's ever a church that had biblical foundations. If there's ever a church that had the potential to impact the world. It was a church at Ephesus. And in their early days, the gospel spread from Ephesus all over Asia. And Paul even commends them for their sincere faith and their undying love. And 30 years later, they have wilted. He says, you've lost your first love. As the pastor of Mount Airy Baptist Church, may I say to you, we can't live on our reputation. We've got a good reputation in the community. I hear that all the time. We've got a good repu- we're, We've got a good name in the community, and I'm so thankful that we do. But we cannot live on our reputation. We have to continue to live in relationship with Jesus Christ, or we too will lose our first love. Can I get an amen or an or an oh me? Yeah. See, any church has that potential. Any church has the potential to become a museum of what it used to be. Any church has the potential to say, I, you know, it's. Jesus is just not as important to me as it once was. The gospel is just not as important as it once was. The the mission of the church is not as important as it once was. Any church has the potential to simply wilt and not be effective for the kingdom. And Jesus said to that church, if you don't turn around and return to what you used to do, going to take your lampstand out of your presence. Now, that's just a summary. That, that, that was just a summary last week and this week of kind of time-lapse picture of the stages that this church went through. All right? Any questions before I switch gears and, and go into something different? Any questions or comments? All right, I'm going to let you out early. Maybe. I want to give you two or three things to look for as you read through Ephesians. Switching gears now. As you're reading through Ephesians, let me give you two or three things to look for. 
Two or three things to keep in mind that will help you better grasp the entire story and how it applies to our lives and to our church. So, we're done with this. You can take that off the screen if you want to. We're done with this. I'm switching gears. Some specific advice on reading Ephesians. Two or three things to look for as you read the book. Number one, here's, this, this is kind of an interesting one, but you won't find any problems in Ephesians. There are no problems that Paul addresses. Just kind of look for that. Just see if you see any problems. You, I don't think you'll find them. Now, if you read 1 Corinthians, you'll find lots of problems in that church, in that letter. If you read 2 Corinthians, you'll find lots of problems Paul's addressing in that letter. If you read Galatians, you'll find all kinds of problems that Paul is addressing in that letter. But when you read Ephesians, it's kind of a pleasant surprise. He doesn't chew anybody out. He doesn't scold anyone. He's not correcting warped theology. He's not saying, no, you got it all wrong. Instead, in Ephesians, he's stretching the faith of the people he's writing to. In Ephesians, he's stretching the minds of the people that he's writing to, his readers. He's helping them understand what God's doing in the world and, and how God is going about doing it. And he stretches, you'll see it in a moment, he, he stretches our minds. It's hard for us to comprehend what God's doing in the world and how he's doing it. And here's the, here's the thing that Paul focuses on. What God is doing in the world through Christ and through his church. Look for those two things as you're reading the letter. What God's doing in the world through Christ and through his church. You will see those two things throughout the letter. Probably in nearly every chapter. But what you won't find is Paul addressing any kind of a problem. Uh, there, there, there were no problems here. Perhaps it is partially due to the fact that they had such strong teachers. We've already talked about those teachers. Perhaps that might be why he's not addressing warped theology or division in the church. They didn't have those kind of problems at Ephesus. They had strong biblical teachers, and so there's no problems there. And Paul, Paul is simply stretching the minds of the people, helping them understand what God's doing in the world and what God's doing through the church and how he goes about doing it. So that's the first thing to look for. Number two, this one just... I, I just got excited when I read this one. Um, I want you to look for this phrase. Now, this is in the NIV. Your, your translation may use a different phrase. But you'll find this phrase five times in the book. The phrase, at least in the NIV, is in the heavenly realms. In the heavenly realms. As you read through Ephesians, Paul is going to stretch your imagination as he talks about what's happening in the heavenly realms. I, can I be honest with you? I hadn't noticed this before until when I was reading through Ephesians, the first part of the month, the first week, rather, uh, and I got to the, the armor of God in chapter 6. You, you're very familiar, I'm sure, with the spiritual armor of God that's mentioned at the end of the letter in chapter 6. And would you, would you uh, just look in verse 10 and following? Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities and against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil. And where are these spiritual forces of evil? In the heavenly realms. 
When I read that last week or week before last, I guess it was, when I read that, it jumped out at me in the heavenly spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. I thought, I've seen that phrase before when, I've read, when I was reading through this book. Where did I see this phrase in the heavenly realms? Well, let me just trace it with you. I went back to chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, where? In the heavenly realms, with every spiritual blessing in Christ. He's blessed us in the heavenly realms. Now, watch this. It's going to stretch your mind. It's going to stretch your imagination. It's, it's going to hurt your brain. It's going to strain your brain, all right? It's going to strain your brain. He says the blessings that God has for you are not necessarily of this earth. They're not earthly blessings necessarily. But most of God's blessings are in the heavenly realms. In other words, from the very beginning of the letter, Paul is drawing our attention to an unseen world. Make sure you get that. Very first part of the letter, Paul is drawing our attention to an unseen world. That the blessings God has for you is in the heavenly realms. Now, that's not the only places that we see this phrase. Go to chapter 2. Chapter 2. Verse. Well, for context, let's, let's just go to uh, verse 19. Chapter 2. Consequently, you're no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. And that's the wrong scripture. Somebody help me. It's in chapter 2. What? Verse 6, thank you. I don't know why I had that written down. Oh, I see it now. All right, here we go. Chapter 2, verse 6. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. So, chapter 1, verse 3, our blessings are in the heavenly realms. And now he says, "And, and spiritually you were seated with Christ in the heavenly realms with Christ Jesus. Chapter 3, verse 11. Chapter 3, verse 11. Chapter 3. Let's start at verse 10. His intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. His intent, verse 10, was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. Once again, drawing our attention away from this earth to the unseen world. God is triumphantly displaying his manifold wisdom, Paul says, through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly realms. And as a result, the spiritual struggles that we face are not so much against flesh and blood, So we come to chapter 6, verse 12. 
He says, but our struggle is not so much against flesh and blood, but our struggle, verse 12, is against the rulers and against the authority, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Strain your brain for a moment. The blessings that you have of God are in the heavenly realms. Christ is seated in the heavenly realms. The struggles we face, the spiritual battles we fight are in the heavenly realms. Now what does all of that mean? I don't know. Or maybe I should say I don't know as much as I want to know. But here's what I do understand. Listen, this this will be something good to go home on. We're part of a cosmic plan. A part of a cosmic struggle. And mere human resources are not enough. Mere human resources are not... That's why he says in chapter 6, as he ends the letter, listen, listen, you're part of something big. You're part of something that's beyond where you live. Mere human resources are not enough. You need the spiritual armor of God because you're fighting against forces in the heavenly realms. What God is trying to do is something you're not able to do on your own. What God is about in and through the church is so big you can't even grasp it. This is a cosmic plan of God. It is a cosmic struggle with the forces of evil. You're part of it and you better put on the spiritual armor of God because if not, you're going to get wiped out. Because there's some stuff happening in the heavenly realms, in the unseen world that you cannot see. But the Lord God, the Lord Jesus, He's head over everything, including what's in the heavenly realms. And all God's people said, Amen. And Amen. So be strong in the Lord, the Bible says, and in His mighty power. Let me give you the third one to look for. This is going to be real quick. third one to look for is this. The mystery of God forming one body called the church. When you get to Ephesians chapter 3, as you're reading through the book, when you get to Ephesians chapter 3, Paul talks about this mystery that's been unknown to the, to the previous ages. Now, now, listen carefully. The mystery is not simply that Gentiles can be saved. Paul says, no, 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 it's it's more than that. It's not just that Gentiles can be saved. You see, prior to this, only the Jews were God's people. The Jews were God's chosen people. And and then there was this incredible display of God's grace where now Gentiles, non-Jews, are they they can be God's people too. And and Paul said, I know that's mind-blowing, but God's doing something bigger than that. And he calls it this mysterion, this mystery. The mysterion in the, in the Greek word, it means that which has been hidden previously but now is revealed. And he said the mystery, the mysterion is this. It's not just that the Gentiles can come to faith in God too. It's not just that they can be considered God's people. Yes, that's amazing. He said, but the real mysterion, the real mystery is this. That God takes the Jews and the Gentiles, who both are now God's people, and he forms them into one body, the church. And Paul says in chapter 3, that is the incredible mystery of God. That he took his ancient people, and he took these Gentiles who, who, who came to faith in Christ and he brought them together into one body and they now become the body of Christ with Jesus as the head 
And that God, everything he's going to do in the world, he's going to do through that body of Jew and Gentile brought together into one family of faith. Beautiful. The greatest document about the church is the book of Ephesians. As you're reading through Ephesians, keep that in mind. Keep looking for this idea of Jew and Gentile being brought together. Not just that Jews can be saved and Gentiles can be saved, but they're brought together into one body. Church. All right, I told you I was going to let you out early, and I did. God bless. Thanks for being here tonight.